kings, the kings have been unfaithful. And Elisha alone seems, and at least in, not in terms of the entire nation, but at least in terms of everyone that is mentioned in this chapter, all by himself in faithfulness. This uh, really can be broken down into two sections. Number one, we have the story of Haziel killing or murdering Ben-Hadad, the king of Aram. Haziel killing Ben-Hadad, the king of Aram. Now that, of course, is not a story that pertains directly to Israel because this is a story about the Arameans. But nevertheless, what we learn is that it will have great implications for Israel because God will use Haziel to bring a terrible judgment and punishment upon Israel for their sins. And so it is related to the story of the kings of Israel and of Judah. So we have that, and I want to talk about that. And then secondly, we have really the beginning decline and apostasy of the house of David. The beginning decline and apostasy of the house of David. This is beheld in two parts. Number one, the reign of Jehoram. And then secondly, the reign of Ahaziah. The reign of Jehoram and the reign of Ahaziah. Now, I realize, especially for those of you who are very young, that there are a lot of names here. And I'm going to try and make this as plain and as simple as I can because there's Haziel and there's Jehoram and there's Ahaziah and there's, you know, well, there are all these characters in this historical account. But really, I want to take it and, and simplify it into really these two parts. We'll look, first of all, at the murder of King Ben-Hadad, and then secondly, we'll look at the decline, the beginning of the decline of the house of David. Now, Aram is a nation that is north of Israel. Damascus is the capital city. We have been, I don't know if you remember or not, but we have been interacting with Aram over these last several months, on and off. Ben-Hadad, you'll remember, is, this is not the first time we've heard this name. You'll remember that Ben-Hadad and the Arameans had gone to war with Israel. You'll remember that even Israel and Judah got together in an alliance. We're going to see the implications of that here. And you'll remember that Ben-Hadad, at least for a while, began to think that, well, you know, their God is the God of the mountains. That's why we lost the first war. Now he will fight him in the plain. But God says, well, I'll show you that I'm God of all creation. And he defeats Ben-Hadad uh, in that battle. Uh, Ben-Hadad is dying when we open uh, this chapter today. Ben-Hadad is sick. And it's interesting that Ben-Hadad, though, does what? He appeals to the God of Israel. Now, one famous commentator uh, said that it's interesting how even non-believers sometimes, uh, while they will not seek God in their prosperity, yet when they are in desperate straits, will indeed turn to the Lord. And we see something of this with Ben-Hadad. Now, Ben-Hadad did have reason to appeal to Elisha, the prophet of God, to inquire about his well-being. First of all, you'll remember that Israel treated Ben-Hadad very mercifully. And you'll remember that they even said that, you know, the Israelites are a merciful people. And, and so he knew something about the nature of God's grace and mercy as it was revealed through the, through the people of God. 
Secondly, we know that Ben-Hadad knew about the healing of Naaman. It was Ben-Hadad who wrote the letter that was sent to the king of Israel saying, I'm sending you my general, my servant, my captain, who is a leper. And you remember that the king of Israel tore his garments and he said, who am I to heal a leper? And he thought Ben-Hadad was just laying a trap for him as a cause for war. But then you remember Elisha said, why does the king tear his garments? Can God not heal? Send him to me. And so Naaman was sent, and you know the story. We went over that. Naaman dips himself in the Jordan seven times, and his skin is restored to that of a young child. And he goes off. And so Ben-Hadad, the king of Aram, would have known about the healing of his servant, his general. And then, thirdly, Ben-Hadad would have known about the capturing of his army by Elisha. Remember when they sent him to Dothan and surrounded him? And Elisha prays, well, two things. One, that his servant would see the chariots of fire, that those who are with God are more numerous than the army of Ben-Hadad. But then he also prayed that the eyes of the army would be blinded, not with a physical blindness, but a, a lack of understanding. And you remember Elisha brings them to Samaria, the capital city of Israel. And the king of Israel says, shall I kill them? Shall I kill them? And Elisha says, no, these are prisoners of war. Feed them. <laughs> Give them something to drink and send them home. And so we see the mercy again of the Lord to Ben-Hadad in not destroying his army. And so now we find at the end of Ben-Hadad's life, he calls for Elisha. He hears that the man of God is in Damascus. Now, why is Elisha outside the boundaries of Israel? What is he doing in the capital city of Aram? Well, the scriptures are not explicit. Some commentators like to hypothesize. Some say maybe he went to go see Naaman, his disciple and to follow up with him. Uh, maybe, maybe he is showing mercy ministry just as he did to the widow, or the Shunammite woman. We don't know. But for whatever reason, in the providence of God, he is in the capital city of Damascus when King Ben-Hadad is dying. And Ben-Hadad goes and sends Haziel, his servant, to go inquire whether he will survive or not. And so he goes to Elisha, and he, Haziel brings extraordinary gifts. Look at verse, I think it's 9 here. Yeah, verse 9. Um, notice here, he brings every good thing of Damascus. Now imagine this showing up at your, your, your doorstep. Forty camel loads of every good thing. I mean, the king is sparing no expense to show his appreciation of Elisha. He came and he stood before him and said, your son Ben-Hadad, king of Aram. Notice even in the language, what is Ben-Hadad doing? He's the king and yet he's humbling himself before the man of God saying, your son Ben-Hadad, king of Aram has sent me to you saying, will I recover from this sickness? And Elisha says that he should go and tell him he is going to recover. But then what happens? He Elisha tells this man, Haziel, 
He says, you will sure, saying, you will surely recover, but the Lord has shown me that he will certainly die. And what's going to happen here? Well, what is, what is Elisha prophesying? Elisha is prophesying that indeed Ben-Hadad would be ordinarily healed of this disease. He was on the way to being recovered of his sickness. But that in the end, he is going to die because Haziel is going to kill him. He is going to murder him. And so indeed, it comes to pass, as the prophet said, that um, Haziel goes and says, you're going to recover. And then the next day, we are told that Haziel takes a wet cover and places it over the face of the king so that he cannot breathe. Maybe he's weakened in his condition because of his sickness, and he dies. Haziel has murdered Ben-Hadad. Before that Elisha sent him off back to the king, Elisha wept, and Haziel asked, why do you weep? In verse 12, and he said, because I know the evil that you will do to the sons of Israel. Notice here that Elisha is prophesying that this man Haziel, who is presently the servant of King Ben-Hadad, he will become the instrument by which God will send a severe judgment against his people. Now, this does not mean that God, as we have seen earlier, is not guilty of any sin. God is not the author of evil, but he is sovereign over evil. Whose evil is it? It is the evil of Hazael. It is the wickedness, the perniciousness of Haziel's own heart and his lust for power and his lust for blood that will be used by God in his sovereignty. Now, we are dealing with divine mysteries here. We need to tread carefully. When we think about the sovereignty of God and the Holocaust, when we think about the sovereignty of God and abortion, when we think about the sovereignty of God and the reign of terror of Stalin and the millions murdered, when we think about the sovereignty of God and Mao Zedong and the millions of people that died in China by his hand, we have to tread carefully. We do not, first of all, want to impute any guilt to God himself. The Bible says that God is without any sin. God is light. He does not countenance evil. There is no darkness in him. There is no shifting shadow in the living God. God is altogether good. He is holy, holy, holy. He is righteous altogether. The Bible, in addition to telling us of the righteousness and goodness of God, also explicitly tells us that God is absolutely sovereign, 100% sovereign. Nothing occurs in this life, in this world, apart from the decrees of God. God is absolutely in control of all things. And so we are left with this, what is known theologically as theodicy. T-H-E-O-D-I-C-Y, theodicy. And that is, simply put, the problem of evil. How do we deal with a God who is infinitely good, infinitely holy, infinitely righteous, and infinitely sovereign? And yet a world that is wicked, murderous, adulterous, idolatrous, where terrible things happen. Great evils. Jesus said it himself. He said that great evils would come through men. But woe unto what? That man through whom it comes. And that's what we need to learn in this chapter here. 
that God in his sovereignty allows for Hazael to commit these great crimes against humanity. And yet, it is woe unto Hazael. The evil is all Hazael's. We see that in our own day with wars and rumors of wars. Who is at fault? Well, men are at fault for these things. But God sees to it in his sovereignty that they are working together for the good of his church, ultimately, and the glory of his own name. These are things that will not be finally fully understood and reconciled, I think, till the day of the last judgment. On this side of the veil there, these things still seem in many ways mysterious if we spend but even a few minutes contemplating them. But when we see God face to face in the light of his glory, all will be made plain and clear, and we will wonder in amazement at the wisdom, power, and righteousness of God. Friends, there was no greater evil ever committed than the evil that was done to the Lord Jesus Christ. When wicked men, both Jew and Gentile, nailed him to a cross and crucified the very Son of God, the very perfect man, God of God and yet truly a man who came into this world. And yet, what does God do with the greatest of all evil? He uses it to save us. The greatest wickedness ever perpetrated in this world is also the greatest blessing. That's the mystery of the cross. The cross is the worst of all things, and the cross is the best of all things. The cross is the most pernicious of all human endeavors, and yet it is also the greatest blessing of God. That in Jesus Christ, we have eternal life. We have reconciliation with God. We have forgiveness of our sins. We have peace and righteousness with God because of Jesus' death on that cross. When Jesus died on that cross, though men intended it for evil, God intended it for good. Jesus Christ bore our sins on that cross. God saw to it that our iniquities, our evils, our murders, our adulteries, our idolatries were placed on the head and shoulders of Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ cries out, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Because Jesus Christ is bearing as a substitute for us the atonement of our sins. He's bearing the, the weight and the curse of the sins to pay for those sins so that we could indeed come and be in the presence of God with blamelessness and great joy. And this can only be accomplished by the might and power of God. And so God raises Jesus on the third day bodily from the dead, And that whoever believes in Jesus Christ, the Bible says, will not perish. If you will turn to Jesus Christ, no matter what you've done, no matter what you may have been in your former life, all is forgiven through faith in Jesus Christ because Jesus Christ has paid the full penalty for our sins. Jesus Christ has owned those sins as though he committed those sins. The innocent one has become the guilty one so that you, the guilty, might be declared righteous in the sight of God. The Bible says that if you will believe and repent of your own sins today, the Bible promises you that if you should die tonight, you would be with Jesus Christ and God in heaven tonight. The Bible promises that everyone who looks to Jesus Christ by faith will be saved. All who call upon the name of the Lord in sincerity will be forgiven. They will be pardoned. They will be justified in the sight of God. They will be reconciled to God. They will be made the children of God. You must believe, though, 
in the Lord Jesus Christ. We cannot offer gifts to God that will bring this about. We cannot practice any amount of piety that will bring this about. We cannot say enough prayers that will do this. We, we must, by faith, look to Jesus Christ, what Jesus Christ has done. Not what I'm doing, not what I have done. No amount of Sunday school teaching, no amount of personal family worship, no amount of giving to the offering plate will atone for a single sin. Sin must be atoned by Jesus Christ. What Jesus alone has done, and what happened to Jesus was the worst of all things, and yet it was also the best of all things under the plan and sovereignty of God. God is not the author of evil. Wickedness is holy of evil angels, the devils, demons, and of men, men who have fallen. Ever since Adam and Eve, our first parents, fell into sin, we were born in sin. We've done evil from the very beginning. That's why redemption could never come from man up. It always had to come from God down. Man who is wicked could not build any tower that would lead to heaven. It would be God who would have to come down in the person of his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. So we, we see here that Elisha <clears throat> sees the terrible things that are coming. Notice verse 12 here. Elisha says <clears throat> to Haziel, Haziel says, why are you crying? Why are you weeping? He says, because I know the evil that you will do to the sons of Israel. Their strongholds you will set on fire. And their young men you will kill with the sword. And their little ones, the babies, you will dash in pieces. And their women with child, pregnant women, you will rip up. And Haziel says, well, who, who am I to do such a thing? I'm nobody. I'm just this servant of the king. And Elisha says, the Lord has shown me that you will be king over Aram. God, in his sovereignty, <clears throat> excuse me, allows Haziel to become king. And what a terrible thing it is when God turns nations over to wicked rulers. This is why you and I have an obligation to pray, as the New Testament teaches, for those that are in authority. To pray for them, to have wisdom, to pray that God would restrain their wickedness, that God would, by his spirit, illuminate their understanding of his word, that they would be believing and not unbelieving, and that they would do righteousness instead of wickedness. How terrible it is when God turns nations over to wicked rulers. So, we see here something else, I think, about the Lord Jesus Christ that I need to point out. And how much Elisha is like his Savior, Jesus. That as Elisha saw, by way of revelation, what would happen to the cities of Israel, we see that the Bible also teaches in the New Testament that Jesus wept over the last time he would enter into Jerusalem. You remember that in that final week, prior to Jesus' own crucifixion, he would come to the mount where he could see Jerusalem set before him. And as he saw Jerusalem set before him, the Bible says that Jesus began to weep over it. And he began to lament out loud, Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, who kills the prophets. How I longed to gather you as a mother hen gathers her chicks. But you were unwilling. And so Jesus here 
mourns over the hard-heartedness of the very city that was the city of David, the very Zion of God. The city that should have been the city on a, on a shining hill, the shining city on the hill, had become a den of thieves. And now they crucify the Son of God in their wickedness. Jesus goes to the city that kills the prophets, and he weeps over their hard-heartedness and their sins. Israel has become apostate, and in their apostasy, they kill the Son of God. And there is something, I think, to learn by way of application for us 2,000 years later. And that is that the Lord reminds us that there's another day coming, a final day of calamity coming. The day, the Bible calls it the day of judgment. The final day when God will bring a great destruction upon all the impenitent and all the wicked. God will bring a final judgment. Satan himself will be thrown into the lake of fire, we are told, and all the demons. But also all ungodly men and women will be thrown into this lake of fire as well with the wicked angels. God will see to it that there is a day of destruction. And when the wicked see this day, they will cry out unto the mountains to fall on them and the hills to cover them because they see the terrible wrath of the Lamb of God. You see, today, friends, the Bible says is the day of salvation. But there is a day when the day of salvation will come to an end and we will have the day of judgment. The day of salvation is today. Today is the time to reconcile to God. Today is the day to recommit your life to Jesus Christ. If you have never committed your heart and life to Jesus, today I am offering in Jesus' name you the opportunity to repent and believe on him. The reason today is a day of salvation is because the day is the door of Christ is still open to you. There's coming a time when the Lord will shut the door. You remember the parable of the foolish virgins who ran out of oil. Some of them had oil and some uh, virgins did not have oil. And the foolish ones ran out and they had to go to town to get the oil. And when they came back, the Bible said that the bridegroom had come. And he opened the door, the day of salvation, and the wise virgins went in. But he shut the door to the foolish virgins and they stood at that door and they knocked at the door and they said, let us in, let us in too. Lord, Lord, let us in, Lord. And they kept knocking and the voice on the other side said, I don't know who you are. Right now, Jesus is saying, come, come in. Today, Jesus is saying, any who will come unto me, I will in no way cast out. But there's a day coming when Jesus will shut the door, the day of judgment. And if you are on the left hand of Jesus Christ on that day, you will not be allowed to cross over the aisle to the right hand side of Jesus. Now that division will, will be e eternal. And that's why the rich man cried out to Father Abraham, if Lazarus could but just you know, dip his finger in the water and and give him just a drop to cool his tongue. And Abraham says what? I mean, uh, he says what? No, he, Lazarus cannot do this because one cannot go from one side to the other. The day of judgment had already begun for the rich man who neglected Lazarus at his gates. 
Well, I need to move on here to the second uh, point, and, and that is now we also see not only the murder of Ben-Hadad and the judgment it's going to lead to uh, against Israel, but now we also get a glimpse of why this judgment is coming. And you see it here, look with me at verse 16 and following. Why is it that God is going to bring such destruction and permit such evil to occur through Hazael? Well, we, we get a kind of a premonition of it, don't we, in the next couple sections of this chapter, because we are told why. There are new kings arising in the south, and they do not walk with the Lord. There are new kings, and they are walking instead in the ways of evil. Look at uh, verse 16. Now in the fifth year of Joram, the son of Ahab. Now that's the Joram of the north. They have similar names. So what the, what, they, what the book of Kings does is he calls the king in the north Joram and the king in the south Jehoram. Okay, They're two different men. They actually kind of have the same name. But in order for you to distinguish the two Jorams, the author calls the king of Judah Jehoram. So when Joram is in his fifth year up north, he's the son of Ahab, king of Israel. Jehoshaphat, now Jehoshaphat being a good king, he does what? He allows Jehoram to begin to, to reign with him. Okay? We see this kind of with David and Solomon. Remember when David became so aged that he began to allow Solomon to reign with him. And, and you remember that even David bowed down before the people, before Solomon. Um, and, and so Solomon began that transition of power. You see the same thing happening here. Jehoshaphat is a good king. We've seen him do good things. But Jehoram is not of the spirit of his father. Jehoram, the son of Jehoshaphat, king of Judah became king, we're told in verse 16. He was 32 years old when he became king. He reigned eight years in Jerusalem. But notice verse 18. He walked in the way of the kings of Israel. Now, what is the way of the kings of Israel? The way of the kings of Israel, well, that began with the first king of Israel after the split between the northern and southern kingdoms. And that was the way of Jeroboam. Who is Jeroboam, remember? Jeroboam was the one who instituted the calf worship. He put a golden calf in Samaria, and he put another golden calf in Bethel. And he said, these are your gods, Israel. Worship these gods. And then, of course, later comes Ahab and Jezebel. And Ahab and Jezebel do that, and even worse. They begin to cause the people to serve the gods of Baal. And what we learn here is that now, for the first time, the southern kings are beginning to embrace the apostasy. The apostasy, the leaven, the sin of idolatry has leavened its way now into the highest courts of Judah. Why did this happen? Here's a lesson for all of us. And we talked about this several weeks ago, but it's now finally here before our eyes. Verse 18. This is how it happened, why it happened. For the daughter of Ahab became his wife. 
How did this evil leaven its way into the courts of Judah? It happened because though King Jehoshaphat, a good man, godly king, but he compromised in making an alliance with Ahab. You remember it was Jehoshaphat who said to Ahab, your people are as my people? And he sealed that alliance, obviously, here in marriage. He allowed his son to take a wife from the house of Ahab. And it says that because of that, the son did evil in the sight of the Lord. This should tell us something important about marriage who we marry, who our children marry, our grandchildren, who they marry. It has consequences. You see, marriage, young people, is not just about you and another person. It affects the whole church. The church, as a church, has an interest in who we marry. I say we because I'm single. The church has an interest that we marry, as Paul says, only in the Lord. Because one of the ways that the devil undermines the church is by getting Christians to marry people who are non-believers and thereby infect and cause compromise through the generations. Now, God is gracious, and we see that in verse 19. Even in the midst of sin, we see the promise that God made to David is still firm. God is not going to be the one who compromises his covenant to David. Even though David's own prodigy are the ones who are sinning against the Lord, look at verse 19. However, the Lord was not willing to destroy Judah. Why? For the sake of David, his servant. Since he had promised him to give him a lamp to him through his sons always. The reason God will continue to show Mercy to Judah is because of David. Because back in 2 Samuel chapter 7, God had promised that David would always have one of his descendants sitting on the throne. And of course, that would ultimately lead to the Lord Jesus Christ, the ultimate son of David. This promise had to be fulfilled. And so God would not destroy Judah because Christ had not come. And God would send Jesus Christ, the son of David, to be that king who would restore everything. And you know, friends, this is why it's so important that everything we do in worship, especially, is done in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Because we, like Jehoshaphat, compromise. And the reason God doesn't destroy Covenant Presbyterian Church is because he's made a covenant with Jesus Christ. And it's because he's made a promise to David that David would have somebody on his throne who would be greater than David, Psalm 110, and yet David's son. And it is because of Jesus Christ we can worship here. We, the reason God does not destroy us completely as a church, though we in many ways fall short of God's moral purposes for us, is because of Jesus. Well, i got to close here. There's some final thoughts here. 
First of all, I want us to see that, that we, as God's people, need to guard our hearts. Um, Jehoshaphat was a good man, and I don't want to make him out to be anything other than that. The Bible says he was a good man. But he did compromise, and that led to terrible consequences that I'm sure Jehoshaphat himself grieved over before he died. And those consequences had generational implications. So I would say, by way of closing, we need to guard our own hearts. Public apostasy didn't begin publicly. It began in small ways, small compromises, little defections that maybe were out of view from the public eye maybe were unseen and inward, but led to calamity for the people of God. I saw a quote just recently from Dr. Sinclair Ferguson saying, therefore we ought to guard our hearts. Because any compromise may begin with failure in here, in our heart. The compromises of Israel and the compromises later of Judah began, began by personal compromises over God's decree concerning marriage. And because of that, the church of God fell into apostasy. We're being asked to compromise, aren't we, today, on that very issue of marriage. What's the definition of marriage? Who can marry? Who cannot marry? Friends, we compromise on this. We compromise on things such as what does it mean to be a man? What does it mean to be a woman? If we compromise on what does the Bible mean to be inerrant and infallible, if we make compromises, it will lead to calamity. We sow to the wind, we reap the whirlwind. Therefore, friends, be careful. Let's use our Lord's days wisely and prepare for the day of judgment. When we use the days of grace and gospel to its fullest, it will keep us, I think, from being swept away with the world in the day of judgment. It will be a blessing. The day of judgment will be a tremendous mercy and blessing to the elect on that day. Let's pray. Father, we thank you, Lord, for your grace in Jesus Christ. And pray, Lord, that you would uh, spread and apply the blood of Christ to the sermon in all its defects. But, Lord, that which truly is of your word, Lord, would find a good soil in which to germinate and bear fruit in our lives. We pray this for Christ's sake. Amen.